Hi everyone, I'm Mitzi, and this is the Blessings Podcast, where we talk about the blessings and the lessons of life. Life is story, and story is life. We tell our stories and listen to the stories of others to build connection. We learn about ourselves, and we gain a broader understanding of humanity at large, which allows us to flourish as individuals and as a global community. This is a place to see and be seen. It's a place to heal, and it's a place to spark transformation in your own life with inspiration from your fellow humans. I've spent decades as a professor in the college classroom, and now it's time for me to break out of the university and into the school of life, teaching many people beyond the confines of a physical classroom, facilitating your expansion, your success, and your personal fulfillment and self-discovery by bringing you the stories of people just like you. As you listen, things will come up for you, and these are the places where you need to explore your own life experiences. Life has been trying to tell you something. It's time to tune in. So enjoy the takeaways from this show, and please share it with someone you love so we can generate that butterfly effect of love, connection, and healing all across the world. Let your past transform your present. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Blessings Podcast. I am so pleased to have with me the beautiful Deetra Denise today. I became familiar with Deetra when I used her story from the popular Instagram Humans of New York in my university writing class as the basis of a lesson. Who knew that years later I'd be dealing with a different kind of lesson and getting the insight from the woman herself? Deetra spent 34 years with her abusive pastor husband until she finally made a harrowing escape literally hopping out of the car on the highway and getting into the car of a stranger who she prayed was stopping to help her. And the immense bravery that this took is almost beyond comprehension. She had to start over again with nothing. And after many years of working several jobs at a time to get by, she caught a break when she became beloved by millions when her story went public. She is a performer, a songbird, finally allowed to live outside of her cage, and she does her one-woman shows in New York City. She's full of life. She's never going to let anyone keep her down again. She's got spunk, and she's kind of famous for puffing on a good cigar. And she has her own line of cigars now called Beatrice Story. So if you like cigars, we'll let you know where to get those. And I think that's really sweet. I've always thought cigars had kind of sweetness about them. And she's here with us now to fill us in on the details from the beginning. So welcome, Deetra. <laughs> that was quite the introduction. And thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, can you tell I'm a writing teacher? <laughs> <laughs> great job. Great job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good. I'm glad you're here. All right. Well, you know, I'd love to get started right at the beginning. So for those who are not familiar with your story, we're going to go through it. But I want to go right back to the beginning and talk about where you were born and just a little bit about your early life. All right. Well, I was born in Arkansas. So I was born to a poor pastor and his wife. We, we were very poor growing up. It's one of those things you look back and you can see how poor you were. I didn't really know it at the time. But he pastored little churches and we moved all over the state of Arkansas. I'm the oldest of four children. You know, my home, I felt loved, but it was it was kind of a conditional love. And when you are born into ministry, it was a very ultra conservative, tiny Baptist thing, much more conservative than SBC, which you hear a lot about in the news, the Southern Baptist Convention. So you're part of the package, the financial package when your dad's at a church and you're required to be good, be sweet, be kind to everybody, but there's never any pay for you or and usually any much kindness. My clothes were the clothes that came from the children in the church and what my mother would find at Google or Salvation Army. And she made a few of my clothes. But I I was someone, I was happy wherever I was. And my mom and dad loved me. They had quite a bit of dysfunction in their marriage, but I felt loved growing up. That's beautiful. So the idea of being a commodity as a child is something I never thought of, especially as a child of a pastor or someone who's got a persona that they have to kind of keep up. And I love the way you just described that. You were like a commodity to this to your family. How did that feel? Did, were you aware of that as a child? I was not. In fact, when I got to college, I still thought being a pastor's daughter was about the greatest job you could have on earth. I got to do so many things. Like when I was four, my dad stood me in a chair and told me to sing. When I was 14, he goes, Deetra, this is your class to teach. And Deetra, this is your bus. You will be doing a bus route. And Deetra, you will do this and you will sing here. And I never knew that I was good at anything that I did, but I loved being a part of. And my dad hates doing anything alone. So I was a part of his life and got to do, like I typed the letters to the visitors when I was 14. I started doing that and I would address envelopes to the new people who visited the church. So I was a part of all of that and loved, you know, firstborns relate to authority. Either we love it or we rebel. And I loved it, loved pleasing it. And he loved having a sidekick. He could say, Deidre, get so-and-so on the phone. I had all the member, members memorized of the church members in my head. And I could just dial whoever he wanted and say, yes, my dad would like to speak to so-and-so. And so it was that type of, I didn't feel like as a commodity, I felt like an assistant mm-hmm. that was needed. Wow. So it was interesting. You just described yourself as you thought it was the greatest job you ever had yeah. being a pastor's daughter. Yeah. You were working from the time you were a very little girl. Very little girl. Yeah, that's so interesting. Can you tell me what was the earliest thing you can remember in your life? What is your earliest memory? That's a very interesting question. And I have tracked that down in trying to backtrack through my life and figure out how I view myself. And my earliest memory is I was two years old. We had gone on a little vacation and we were on a dock out with water. It was windy. And my earliest recollection is being held down under bright lights. And my mom told me I got something in my eye. And so I was held down. They were trying to get something out of my eye with a bright light. That is my very first memory. That's interesting. So as you, a lot of people, when they come up with the earliest memory, the thing that I find, this is an exercise I ask people to go through a lot in my podcast and in some of the educational work I do. And I find that people are not sure about what the earliest memory means, what the significance is, why they remember it, because often it is something that doesn't seem obvious at first. So since right. you've already done some work on it, what do you think that significance is of that? Well, I don't know, maybe 
30 years ago, I, I knew that there was something wrong in my life and I was trying to figure it out. And I was reading this book, Unlocking the Secrets of Your Childhood, and you try to figure it out if you see yourself as a victim or whatever. And I got so terrified going through the checklist, I had to close it. I tried again, got so terrified, and I talked to the man, I was raised to call your mother. And my mom said, Deetra, I don't know of anything bad in your childhood. I worked hard to watch out for that. And so that gave me kind of permission to go through the book. But what I realized is that earliest memory revealed that I saw myself as a victim being held down. And it took me years to come to grips with what had happened. I started my flashbacks at 42 and relived this harrowing nightmare that I have worked hard to get through. And I no longer, one therapist here in New York wanted me to use the word victim. I refused. And I said, I'm not saying it. And she said, I think you should be able to say it. You know, you were. And I was like, I will not say that word. And she said, maybe you could back up and just say that was wrong. I said, heinous. Those men should be killed for what they did to me. I can say that, but I'm not a victim. She said, then are you a survivor? I said, no, I'm not a survivor. She said, then what are you? I don't know if this is allowed on your program. You can edit it. But I said, I'm a fucking overcomer. That's what I am. Yeah. It's hard work, but that's what I am. Wow. All right. So you're touching on something really deep. Do you want to reveal what it is that you overcame? All I'm going to say is at the age of two, there were a group of men who behind my parents' back began to do things that lasted for several years. It was heinous things, probably everything you can imagine and things you can't imagine. And it was one of the things that when I lived, later we'll get to it, a great lesson that I learned about that. But it was so vile, you just block it. And then when I was 42, the flashback started and remembering. And so that was what literally my first memory is being held down at a doctor's office with a light, but also they held me down at another time a little bit later. So that's my first memory. And I have unraveled all of that and figured it out. Yeah. It feels like maybe that first memory that you have, the early memory is like a safe segue into the other. Yeah. 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 Wow. Thank you for sharing about that. So your parents weren't aware. They were not aware at all. And when I had memory and began to talk to them about it, my dad was like, you've been talking about this for 20 years. Like every five years, I would say, dad, this, I can remember this right here. And this is happy, but I'm so scared right here. And he goes, I don't know. And I'd say, dad, there's this other memory. And I have these four memories that I would, they would bug me. They would just bug me, but I could not figure out why they bugged me. And finally it just started like a tank that has an abscess and eventually it eats those little rivets and begins to leak. And that's what happened. Yeah. Wow. What was going on at the time of your life when you started to access those memories when you were 42? I was 42. I was living in this abusive marriage and what had happened is I knew that sometimes the man I was married to would do what I call dumb husband stuff. I called it dumb husband stuff and it seemed that I would overreact and it bugged me. I don't like overreacting. I I just don't like conflict. I don't like disagreements. And so for a while, I I finally told him one day, I said, listen, there's a hurt in me and I don't know what it is. And you keep knocking it and just ask God to let me know what it is because I don't like you paying for stuff you really didn't do. And the interesting thing is once I got that done, I realized what he's doing wasn't stupid husband stuff. It was very abusive stuff. And so it put a different light on it. But so I asked God for six years, literally six years. God, there's something in me. I know it is. I've been trying to unlock the secret for a long time. I don't have a clue, but I trust you. I trust you. And it took six years of praying that in a very intense manner, desperate manner, if you will. And one day I went to a conference about biblical warfare. I, since I was 12 years old, people would come and tell me their problems. People in the church would come and then I would tell dad he could deal with it. At college, I was the room where they came and told their sorrows and their troubles. And I don't mind holding any of that for anybody. And then as a pastor's wife, that was my role. And I love people. I don't know if it's because I've been hurt so deeply. I know the value of being understood and loved, but that kind of became something I was known for and I, I enjoy doing. And so I begged God to show me. And I went to this biblical warfare campus, conference to get some more insight into how to love people and to do it in a meaningful way, in a way that helped them. And things just broke loose while I was there. And I started my first, went, you know, went to a couple of them and I was sobbing. And so I was living in a situation where I was desperate to find out a hurt that was within me, but also in a way that I wanted to love on other people to help them through their own personal hurts. And I was desperate to resolve this thing between me and the man I was married to. And I wanted to make sure I had nothing to do with what was going on between us. Mm-hmm. So you were kind of blaming yourself. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So when you look back at your childhood, what kind of things do you think might have contributed to the way that you ended up getting into this relationship with this man? <laughs> Girl, you're going for the juggler. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything? <laughs> oh, there, there, there could be one, maybe two things that contributed. One is I was born into a religious group that te- and I was taught from birth. Woman is born for the man. She is only to be under his headship. And I was drawn charts, the umbrella, the umbrella is God, the man, the woman, the children. And I, as a woman, I'm to be under my dad's authority to go from that to marriage. And I'm not allowed to do anything without getting my authority's blessing and permission. And of course, the authority gave you permission to run the household and to do all those things and to have the children. But like, if I wanted to, if I got invited for a speaking engagement, I had to get permission from my authority. So I was raised from birth that that's the mindset. And my dad told me a lot as a teenager, when you get married, you have to marry somebody who can conquer you because you're too strong. And I never rebelled a day in my life, never rebelled a day in my life, but I am a firstborn. I am a strong 
individual. And I think the, the worst thing was, I also have a bullshit radar in my gut. And when something's not right, I'll ask a question. I wasn't asking a question to be critical. I was asking a question out of something doesn't make sense. And men in those roles, and not that every man in a religious role is that way, but it hides men very well that have neurosis and they can use the name of God as a bat to beat people. So that was my rebellion is I would ask a question and you don't ask questions of authoritarians. You don't ask questions of pastors. You don't ask questions of a pastor, authoritarian dad. You just don't. And so all of that was, and I'm, like I said, I'm a firstborn. And I love authority. You know, I want authority to be happy. So being born into that religious group mindset. And then my dad was a member of this little bitty ultra conservative, but he really fellowshiped with an even smaller, more conservative independent Baptist. And those, his best friends were that. And so it was even more so a guy couldn't have hair that touched over his ears or his color, or he was rebellious. I went, my dad put in a little private school where girls didn't wear pants. They only wore dresses. So I didn't wear pants for 32 years. So all of that, one of my therapists said, you were groomed by your dad and handed over to that man. So that's all I knew. It wasn't that I married into it. It was all I knew. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's totally understandable. When you were young, was there anything you fantasized about rebelling against? Oh, no. Rebelling. If I did something wrong, I could tell my dad I couldn't stand it. You know? <laughs> so it never even crossed your mind? No, never. It never crossed my mind. In fact, when I turned 16, I got keys to the car. My driver's license it was my birthday. I asked my dad if I could take the car out. And he tells the story later. He said, she asked for the keys to the car. She's 16. And he said, sure. And I get back a couple hours, two or three hours later. He goes, so Dietra, what did you do? And I had gone to visit all the widows in the church and just to sit with them a little bit. It didn't, and I, when I heard him tell that story, I was like, you mean I could have done something else? It didn't occur to me to go do anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. The first thing I did when I got my driver's license at 16 was I drove my car to the beach, which was like two and a half hours away. And I just went to the beach by myself and walked around. <laughs> I got a parking ticket. And my father later, got my parents got the parking ticket. And my dad said, did you drive to the beach? <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> the beach was nowhere near Arkansas. So that wasn't a possibility either. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. All right. So how was your life as a teenager? How would you characterize it? Well, if you're going to characterize it by even Christian standards of a teenager, it was the most vanilla, no even French involved in that. And just steady. I taught at church. I ran a bus route. I sang specials. I graduated from high school a year and a half early and I went to college. I look back and go, I was the ultimate good girl, even though I never saw myself as a good girl. You know, I didn't have thoughts of doing anything. I didn't do anything. I was very happy to do whatever my dad needed to do and be at home. How would you have described yourself? I wouldn't have known there was a me to describe. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. That's why I asked you that question. That's really interesting. How would your parents have described you? When I went to college in 78 and came back, my mom's told me this several times. She goes, you were always one. You wanted to learn how to paint. And so when I was 12, my mom went to live and painted and my dad wouldn't do it. I said, I'll do it. And so I ended up painting the living room. I painted my bedroom. I painted the kitchen. I painted. It wasn't until I got to the inside of the kitchen cabinets that I was like, you know, painting's a lot of work. I mowed the yard every week until it was a sister younger than me and a brother. I did more chores than the other kids put together. And so mom said, you always want to learn and to do. You were pushing us. And when you went to college, we kind of sat down and went, and we just never got up again. So I was always involved in things. I was someone who was always involved. Yeah. What were you going to be when you went to college? What was your aspiration? What did you want to be? I wanted to be a teacher, a school teacher. Oh. And then what happened? Well, I decided I would, I got a four-year degree and so I have a Bachelor of Arts in Bible and a minor in music. And it was the first time a female had gotten a Bachelor of Arts from this little Christian school. And that was the preacher route. They didn't know what to do with me. So my internship was doing music at a Christian school. But after my third year, I was engaged. Let's see, I got engaged in January of my third year and got married that summer. So I took my last year in two years. I was married and I commuted. But in fact, the principal, the pastor of the church of the little bitty Christian school I graduated from and the principal showed up at college one day. And the, he was the president of the pastor of the church. He was like, teacher, we're waiting on you to come. We've been waiting. This was like, I haven't seen these guys. I heard from them in these two and a half, three years. And uh, I said, well, I changed my, I'm engaged. I'm getting married. And so that all changed. But I got married. I got that degree because I kind of knew that I was going to marry a pastor. That's what I wanted to do. And I knew that a bachelor in Bible and a minor in music would allow me to teach. And I could teach music. I was a pianist. I could teach piano and maybe some voice and earn some money. And then I could work in the church. So that's the reason I went after that degree. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us the story of how you met your husband? I met him. Both our parents, his parents and my parents went to that little school. And so my mom and dad took me there for senior day towards the end of school in 78. And we were in the old main building there. And this guy was coming down the stairway. And my dad said, are you the son of any name? And he goes, yeah. And so we got an introduction. And then that day they announced auditions for a little ensemble that would be on full scholarship. And that ensemble traveled and raised money for the school during the year. And so my mom was like, do you want to audition? And so I did. What I did not know is everybody who auditioned had knew all about this, had been waiting for years, had sent word ahead. I was the only little surprise that just showed up. And the director of the music department was very sweet to me. He didn't tell me until months later when I had the full scholarship what had gone on. And so I didn't have a pianist. I just sang a song a cappella. And he asked me if I played the piano. So I had one song memory. When we all get to heaven, I sat down and played it. So I had a full scholarship for three years singing and playing. I played the piano for the quartet for one year. And then thank God someone joined. That was excellent. But I sang first. I tried out for alto and got first soprano, which I'm not a first soprano. And then the next two years I sang alto. Okay. So yeah. 
that's how I met him. And then he was in this ensemble as the sound guy. And within a few days of school starting, he wanted to meet with me and told me that. I was like, what is the guy got to do to get a date with you? And he goes, I think you're the one God has for me. And we had a conversation, but didn't date till a year later. Okay. Actually, two years later. Okay. He was two and a half years older than me. So I started college a year early. I finished high school a year and a half early. And so I started college a year early. And then he was, he would be three years ahead of me if I started the correct time. But yeah, he was a little bit older. Okay. Um, now, in your Humans of New York story, you talk about how your husband had this ventriloquist dummy. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Yeah. So, in college, he just had the one, which was Clovis. And I fell head over heels in love with Clovis. And Clovis would travel in the van with us. And he didn't have a carrying case for Clovis. So, like, when we actually were married and we traveled full time for eight years, and he had five puppets, every puppet had their suitcase. Clovis was just loose. And I carried, I held Clovis a lot in the van. And Clovis would sometimes talk to me, you know, while I was holding him. Or, and so, you know, the, he would do a, a puppet routine a lot. And I just fell in love with this little you know, black puppet with his fro and his little wireframe glasses and his just happy-go-lucky stuff. So he really added a lot to uh, going to churches and he would break the ice sometimes, you know, how people are uptight at church. And Clovis, Clovis would just say things that you shouldn't necessarily say. People would laugh. It was a great icebreaker. He was very good. Yeah. So would you say that your husband used Clovis to say things that he couldn't himself say? I, I think so. Like in college, we just had a pay phone. Nobody had cell phones. And so that first year we were on campus together, then he was on staff at church. And so two years later, when we finally did start dating, he would call me a certain night of the week and I would know to be standing by the pay phone. And when I would answer, I would say, hello, it was always Clovis. It was never the man. And so Clovis would say, well, you know, he's busy. What else? I just, he told me to come talk to you. So my conversations always started with Clovis and he would always make me laugh. And then he would say, okay, okay, okay. Well, I got to get off the phone now. He wants to talk. So that's really interesting. That's crazy. So how was Clovis different from the man? He was just more happy go lucky. Like, like I said, he would say things that, you know, we were, he, not only me, but he was in this ultra conservative thing too. Now he was very, his family was very, they did a lot more things. They had a TV in the home. His mom had a job outside the home. She was a school teacher. She was very good at that. My mom was the housewife, that kind of thing. So we were raised with two different paradigms of that, but still we were never even one allowed to go to a dance or a prom or do those kinds of things. We didn't cuss. We didn't, you know, we didn't do. Yeah. So maybe Clovis was like his alter ego. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. I've had somebody else ask me that with the other puppets. He was just good at that. You know, that's something that intrigued him when he was a little boy and he had started it. He was just good at that. Yeah. And so you fell in love with Clovis first. Yes. Yeah. When you got into the marriage, who was more present? The Clovis personality or the actual man? Oh, the actual man. Yeah. Yeah. And so what were the qualities that came forward that were the things that you realized were not good, that were the red flags in the relationship? They were hard to pinpoint, but three weeks into being married, I knew I wanted out and mm -hmm. I wanted to call my dad, but I kept thinking, I got to call dad to come get me. And I remember we lived in this little apartment complex. It was a government subsidized thing. And I had my laundry basket with our laundry on my hip and my detergent. And I was walking to the little central building where I could do the laundry. And it's a very vivid walk in my mind of me praying and saying, God, I got to call dad to come get me. And I wrestled it. I wrestled it out. And it was like, you know, my dad said I had to be conquered. And so I guess this is what's wrong is that I'm prideful. And then my mom, the week before I got married, you know, my mom went well, my mom meant well, but she was like, deep for marriage is forever. And just so you know that if there's any trouble, we'll take him, but we won't take you. And so as I wrestled that out, I thought, even if I call, they won't take me. Wow. And I thought, that's right. I'm just being prideful. So I need to submit. That's what's wrong here is my pride. And he told me all the time that I had to be conquered. So, so you let yourself be conquered. Because and it was a godly thing to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. And so over the years, did you push back at all? Oh, yeah. I begged him over 30 years to get help. I began to, there was so many little things. Like I had my hair really short when we got married and I decided I would let it grow a little bit. And he would give me a weekly allowance for the whole marriage. That's how we operated. And he told me everything my allowance would cover. Of course, he we never would cover all those things. And so I decided to let my hair grow out a little bit. And he was like, so when are you going to get a haircut? And I said, I'm going to let it grow out because you wear your hair how I tell you wear your hair. Or I would say, well, I don't have the money. This time. I'll pay for the haircut. And he didn't offer money to me for things. So after we've been married like 20 something years, I was like, oh, I really want to let my hair grow and just try it. What if I tried it with a style? And he gave me permission twice in 34 years and I tried it and just gave up on it. But he made me snack with him every day when he got home from work, even though I was cooking dinner. He grew up snacking. I grew up, you didn't go in the kitchen. And I was like, I'm not hungry. I'm married. You're my wife. You will snack with me when I snack. And I said, but I don't want to eat. You will do what I tell you to do. You gain weight, doing weight watchers, losing weight. He comes in with not with a double dip of my favorite ice cream and a cone. He's traveling in the car holding a cone. And I was like, what is that? It was my feeling like that ice cream. And he goes, This is a reward. I was like, I don't want it. I'm losing weight. I'm your husband. I'm rewarding you. You will eat this. But I said, I don't want it. He said, if you don't eat it, it means you don't love me. You will eat this ice cream. So it was those type of things that's hard to put your finger on. And one day we had a we, it was a night, it was December 18th, the year we got married. And I come in from college. I, you know one of those days that could go wrong, it went wrong. Yes. And he goes, How are you guys? I've had, I've had a terrible day. And we had a big event at church that night. And his parents were coming to spend the night. And the next day would be our six month anniversary. We were going to do some shopping. We were going to eat the top tier of our wedding cake. And I was just tired. I was tired. And he said, Well, then you're not a good Christian. 
And I said, what do you mean? He goes, if you're a good Christian, you don't have bad days. And I was like, are you kidding me? It just got into my skin that he would even say that. And we argued a bit and he left the house. And I, I just, I don't know, I had this wash over me and I thought, hey, I'm not going to be here when he gets back. And I just dropped the clothes I had on right quick, a denim skirt and a top and I put on something else. And I walked across a little apartment complex and visited with a little old lady that I made friends with. And as I was walking, I could see the headlights of the car. He's looking for me. And I thought, I don't care. He's not going to tell me that just because I've had a bad day, I'm not a Christian. And so when I got back, he had seen my clothes dropped on the floor and thought someone had hurt me. And you know, we got to the event and we had a music group there. I was with the guy singing. They're like, how are you? I said, well, tomorrow's our six month anniversary. And I'm not talking to him. And they just thought it was so funny and cute. Disney was. But yeah, and then I would push back. I would ask questions. I begged him to get help. And one time someone kind of figured it out and offered help to him free. And I didn't know that they figured it out. And he came to me and he said, listen, you're such a good counselor. You love me. You help me figure it out. You love me. I fell for that hook, line, and sinker. And I said, of course I will. And I just thought for 34 years, if I could unlock whatever this was, he would love me. And after 20 something years and me, I mean, beating my head against the wall. But most of the time we were good. I had seven kids. I was busy. I was with the church. It would just be when I asked questions. And I went to him. I was about to lose my mind. I was crying. And I was like, something in you wants me dead. I said, I don't know what this is, but we've been married. This has been here since we married. And I want to figure it out. I can't stand it. I said, but something in you wants me dead. He's six foot six. He didn't bat an eyelash. Didn't bother me because you're right. Something in me wants you dead. Wow. And I started sobbing. And I'm like, but why? Why does it want me dead? He goes, I don't know, Deidre. It just wants you dead. And I look back and just think, I don't know who to be more worried about, the man that doesn't feel bad about telling his wife that, or the wife who stayed several more years and was so relieved to have finally figure something out. But I figured something out. What I'm thinking as you tell the story of your marriage is, I'm wondering if that marriage, that relationship, wasn't meant to teach you how to rebel a little bit, how to take care of yourself. Well, I would agree with that. One thing I never expected in life was to be divorced. Never. That wasn't even an option on the table. That wasn't a thought of mine. But you are officially divorced. I am. I am officially finally divorced. Yeah, I have been for a number of years. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. Yeah, was that marriage to teach me some things that are going to benefit me now? And what I hope is going to benefit, and I already know from the story and responses I get from all over the world, has benefited many in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, well, of course, because this is what I do. I am a firm believer that our life experiences are meant to teach us lessons yeah. and that it will continue to give us these scenarios over and again until we learn the lesson. Yeah. And we have probably multiple lessons that we learn, different for everyone, but I'm always looking for that in the things that happen in life and in things that happen to other people. It's like, what is it trying to teach? What is yeah. the lesson? What is it meant to? What is it meant to serve? What purpose, what higher purpose is this experience meant to serve? What yeah. good can come out of it? So, can you talk about what good came out of that marriage? Yes, and I would think came out of the way I was raised to and the marriage is that I am an individual on my own two feet without anybody else. I was designed specifically by the creator for a specific thing, and it is not to be owned and possessed and controlled by a man. It doesn't matter how supposedly godly his intents are, it is not to be controlled and possessed. And that's what I was, was a possession. And he even towards the end, when I began to really push hard, he even confessed that that he saw me as a possession. And it's and I'm gonna tell you, I've been out for eight years now. May 27th, May, eight years of me getting out of the car and start walking. And it's taken me a long time to figure out that I am my own entity and that I am a beautiful entity all to my own. This is not a contest. You know, this is not a beauty contest of comparing anybody else. It is a contest of accepting what my creator is giving me and being the best that I can be at what he's given me. And I'm to a place where I'm happy with who I am and where I'm going. Do I feel like I've learned everything? No. Have I arrived? No, but I love the road I'm on. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, that's the biggest thing I think is just doing the inner work, figuring out who you are on the inside, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that day or that, was it during the day or the, during the night when you got out of the car and started walking? It was like after seven o'clock in the evening. It was dusk. It wasn't dark, but it was dusky. It was getting hard to see. So you're having an argument. You had it out. You just basically said, all right, stop the car. I'm getting out. And you no, know that was it. I had I've been doing some research. No, I didn't know. I've been doing a lot of research. I had gone to a lady and talked about my marriage. And I had used her to wrap up the childhood, never talked about my marriage. Because in my mind, I had the best marriage I knew. I worked hard on my marriage. And so I began researching that type of abuse. And I mean, you could just go down and check all the boxes off. I was shocked, shocked. But it was also like, you know, her comment to me was, you'd be better off if he beat the crap out of you every day. And it was like when she said that, a light bulb went off. Because I've been searching for three weeks of being married that something was wrong in this marriage. And every time I would ask questions, it would be my fault. And But it was like the light went on inside of me and I could see all the broken bones and the bruises that nobody, it wasn't visible from the outside. And I have not been able to prove anything, but I saw them. And I'm the type of personality, once I know what truth is, yeah, I don't back off of that. And I went home and apologized for being a bad wife to him because that's what I had done. I had enabled. I thought I was loving and submissive and I had been a bad wife. And I wanted to own that. And I said, this is over and you will you will now do your part. And I'm not helping you anymore because it got, it got hellish. And so I literally quit and gave boundaries. He crossed every one of them. I drew more boundaries. And I finally, well, actually, I asked God to kill me. I did for several months. And I said, God, if you kill me, then nobody will have to know. My kids won't have to know. My parents won't have Nobody knew about my marriage. And none of the churches, because we had traveled for eight years in 16 states, hundreds of churches, plus all the churches he had pastored. And it broke my heart that the name of God would be hurt. It just broke my heart. And so I begged God to end my life. And I happened to mention this to my doctor, who was a very sweet man in my life, an out-of-the-box doctor. 
And he was just like, did you change your prayer? And I was just shocked. He said, why? He said, your body hears you. And I said, you know, I am dying. I can feel I was dying. I don't have, my health's not that good anyway due to extreme trauma as a child. And so I said, well, God, if I need to change my prayer, I'm willing to ask you, what do you want? And my prayer is before the throne of the true and living God, this is what I pray. What do you want accomplished? And four people who had never been divorced, who'd been married over 20 years, all four people would tell me, you've got to get away from him. And I was like, God, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. But if you'll cause the fulcrum, I will do it. And I had made him talk to some a financial advisor about money. He lied about money all the time. He didn't manage money. He, he was a nightmare. And he would blame me for it all. And anyway, we were coming back from that. And he just said one of his little charming passive aggressive sentences to bring me back under his authority. And I snapped. I just, I'd had it because I'd figured out what he was doing. I just snapped. I said, you're a son of a bitch. And it made me mad. And finally he had something to pin on me. He had a sin to pin on this wife. And he said, I'm going to pull over and tell you something. I said, you go right ahead. Saying son of a bitch, you know, it broke a rule that I was never supposed to break. And it just released a lot for me because what I've learned in New York is I've broken a lot of rules. I occasionally drink a little bit. I smoke cigars. I cuss. And I was raised that you never do any of those things or you cannot be godly. And it promotes this self-righteousness, if you will. Now, did I think of myself as righteous? No, but it was the environment in which I lived. And so as I've done this, I was like, I, there is no self-righteousness here. I come before the throne and say, God, I'm righteous because of Jesus, nobody else, nothing else. And it released something. And he pulled over and got in my face with his finger yelling, which he'd never done, but I never called him a son of a bitch. And I don't know. It was like, this is it. And I just got my purse open the door and started walking. And I was sobbing and I was praying. And I was like, God, I need help. And he said, help. Hard words to man, do you want to ride? I said, yeah. She said, God said, stop and pick you up. And I said, I told him I needed help. Wow. That's a moment. That's a God moment. It was a God moment. But I would have kept walking, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that was it. You didn't go back. That was it. I was done. I had, I brought in an interventionist. I brought in a mediator. I had begged, I had pleaded. And i watched the, inter the interventionist and the mediator horrified, horrified at what he was doing to me, confronted him. I watched him charm them. Mm -hmm. And I knew when he did that, that it was over. Yeah. Yeah. Cause once you recognize those sociopathic kind of behaviors, yeah. would you say he was like a classic narcissist? Yeah. Yes. If you look up, I'm not going to say this, but yes, yes, he is. There's other terminologies for it that check off the boxes. I'm just not going to, I've said them before. And some people are like, yeah. I said, but when I read it in black and white, I'm not making that up. That's true. And I lived it. I lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're under the influence of a highly manipulative person, you don't see it and it takes, it can take a very long time. Yeah, well, maybe longer than others. 34 years was a long time. That is a long time. But, but I was in it 54 years. I was in it 54 years because a narcissist was my authority in both lives. Yeah. Extreme, extreme narcissist in both lives. Yeah. Do you think you'd be susceptible if another narcissist came along? Oh, yeah. I've done a lot of dating and I pick them out in two days. So you know them now? Yeah. I'm like, I ain't got time for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, that's, that's the way it goes. Once you see it, then you, yeah. you can recognize it sooner. You can recognize it earlier. So what kind of things should people look out for? You should look out for the subtle ones, the charming ones, the passive aggressive, it's called. You should look out for, oh my goodness, you're going to go have a night with the girls. I'm going to miss you so much. What am I going to do without you? And as my boxing coach taught me to say, fuck that shit, dude, I'm going to go spend a night with my girlfriends. Go spend a night with your guy friends. You don't have any, make some friends. Yeah, and that terminology, I've had some people say, you're addicted to vulgarity. That's not vulgarity. That's a declaration. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. a declaration of what's going on and what you need to do about it. You just shove that stuff back. And so those are the, someone trying to manipulate you where you don't have an outside life. And even when we got married, I called my parents every week. I'd done that all three years in college. It didn't occur to me that I couldn't do it. And he was, he wanted to guilt me for that money spent. And I said, this is what I do. I call my parents. He tried to isolate me in every way. Like we just had the one car and he would drive it to the church and it would sit there all day long, eight hours. And I would say, how about if I drive you, I come home for lunch. I said, what if I drive you back after lunch? I'll go do the grocery shopping and then I'll pick you up. No, I'll go grocery shopping with you. So the car's just sitting there. No, you cannot have the car. And so, but that was part of, I have to be submissive. And he just wants to spend time with me. No, he didn't want me meeting anybody. Every Sunday we get home, I saw someone so talking to you. They like you more than they like me. So I had to be careful who I talked to. I had to be careful if I laughed when I talked to somebody. So watch out for them trying to isolate you and say, you don't love me if you don't do these things. Terrible manipulation. So after you got out of the car, you got into the car of this savior. And yes. then what happened was your son came and got you. Well, I called one of them. I'd left my phone in my car and I knew his number by heart. He was working and he was like, mom, just phone me one. Told me what happened. So I'll get your hotel room. So he put me in a hotel room that night and I still had four children living at home. Now they left the house. They left the home that night as well as I did. They moved in with a married son. So the married son went and got those four kids and they all came to the hotel. So five of my seven kids came to the hotel that night and I told them what happened. And the last year and a half, the kids knew he'd been hellish because I quit trying and they blamed me. I got the blame for it. You're making our lives miserable. I said, I've done everything I can. It's up to him. But because he can walk in and be so charming and nothing's wrong. Mm -hmm. I got the full blame of that, even though that wasn't my fault. But I told them what happened. And I said, I'm sorry to tell you, but I called your daddy an ugly name. And my youngest son was, you, you cussed? Wow. And I said, I, I did. I, I did. And one of my daughters was like, what are you gonna do tomorrow? And I said, I, I don't know. I guess I'll go home. I didn't have a clue. This was uncharted territory. I had no clue. I spent most of the night praying. You know, what do I do? And I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And the next morning I got a text and it was from a man in the church that we had pastored there for seven years. And he had asked me out of the blue to come work at his insurance office for two weeks. That never happened in my life. And I'd worked there for two weeks. He texted me. He said, your check is ready. 
And my oldest son, who is the one who brought me to New York, he was doing a job at Oklahoma for three and a half weeks. So he was with like three hours for me. And he said, mom, I got a phone call. He named two from one of the kids. You're done, mama. This son, the one that put me in a hotel is going to pick you up, take you to lunch. No one's home. You get in your car and you come to me. So I was able to use the money I made to put gas in my car. I put all my clothes, my purse, Bible and journal, and my junk jewelry in the back of my car. And I drove to Oklahoma. And that was the end. And how long did you stay in Oklahoma? He was there. I, by the time I got there, I'd been there like half a week. So I was there three mm -hmm. weeks with him. And meanwhile, he's on the phone with his siblings and one married son has the four of them. He helped them get an apartment. They moved into their own apartment. They were out for over a year. And then I got word through a friend that he had moved them back into the house with him. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that moment. I was renting a room. This was right before I went in the homeless shelter. And I hung up the phone and I was just this explosion in my mind of pain. Cause I was like, even though by this time they still weren't talking to me, I had them out. They were out. Yeah. They were out. And the fact that he had moved them back in the house, all I could think about was I'm going to go get in front of the train. I cannot handle this. I can't handle this. I can't handle this. And I figured it was a done deal. He's charming. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. That's what they do. So you ended up in New York city. In New York City, of all the places in the world, I'd never been to New York. My idea of New York City was pretty much like that old cowboy commercial with Pace the Conte, New York City, you know. <laughs> and it, I'd been kind of taught that it was Sin City, you know, people got on stage and talked about sinful things. And so I would have come here to visit my son and his wife if I'd ever been able to have the funds to do that, but I didn't. But it's not a place I would have come, but my son brought me here because mom had taken to New York with me. Yeah. So you ended up staying with your son for a bit? For a year with him and his wife, yeah. Yeah. And what did you do when you first got to the city? <sighs> I was waiting to die, actually. Wow. I was done. I was shattered. I wasn't broken. I was shattered. Absolutely shattered. And I would tell God that. I would say, do you see me? You know, I'm shattered. Even if you could gather up the pieces of me, God, there's so many holes from the, what it just dissolved into dirt or dust. You can't even put me back together without holes. And I would talk to him about that. <laughs> and I, I don't know what you're going to do with me. I can never be whole again. Um, and so I would walk around the neighborhood while they were gone. I finally figured out I needed to kind of get out of the apartment. Where I was just sobbing. So I found a place about a mile. I would walk the blocks up there and sit in this plaza. And it was in between two subway stations. So thousands of people just traverse through there all day long. And I'd be there like four hours a day and I would get sunlight. And I don't know, I'm still a magnet for people. I guess people would come step by me and start talking. My rule was I don't talk first. I just don't talk first. And people would come step by me and they would later tell me, you know, I, I came and step by you. I wanted to talk to you. So I had hundreds of conversations. And after like six months, I realized, I thought everybody in New York was certified to be crazy. They were crazy to live here. And after six months, I realized so was I and it was a perfect fit. Wow. So you got to know a lot of people. And did you start to feel more comfortable around other people? Was it kind of your first time doing that? I've been around people my whole life. My dad would send me when I was 12 years old, deep church, we live right next to the church. There's already guests at the church, run up there and keep them company until I can get there. So that had been my role from 12 years old. So I, being around people is not a problem for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you got into the city, though, after you kind of got acclimated, did you start to be able to pick yourself up a little bit more after you started to get back into that getting social and getting to, to be with people? Can you define what you mean by pick yourself up? Pick yourself up. Like, were you able to feel a little bit less like a pile of pieces, broken no. pieces? No. I think that's what you might be asking. And the answer yeah. is no. no. Wow. So what, how did you eventually get yourself out of that? That's a lesson I learned in the homeless shelter. So okay. I was in the homeless shelter. So my, I was with my, I got here May 27th is when I started walking and my son gets me to New York June 20th. And I go around another June, they leave and I end up in the homeless shelter October 31st of 2016. And I've been in the homeless shelter for probably three weeks. And I was a Starbucks barista and a customer asked me, do you live in the area? And I said, well, I used to live in Carroll Gardens. I lived there for a year with my son and his wife. And the next question was, where do you live now? And it was a very specific question. And I did not have an answer prepared. And people would ask me where I'm from because of my accent, but people would ask me where I lived, you know? Mm, yeah. And I said, I, I live in a homeless shelter. Oh. And she was like, you do not. And I said, well, I do. And she's like, I got to get out of here before I start crying. And I said, don't cry. It's just part of my journey. She ran out of the store and I was wiping off tables. And it was a, I mean, it was a defining moment for me. Yeah. And I remember, and I keep a running conversation with God. I don't go to church anymore. I don't, I don't know that I'll ever go back to organized religion, but I'm very much a praying woman. I just keep a running commentary. And I was like, God, that didn't embarrass me. It was shocking to me that that did not embarrass me. And, and I was like, you know, homelessness has a stench. And in New York in particular, it's a horrible stench. Mm -hmm. And I was horrified to be homeless and everything I had endured doing that. But I knew that that stench wasn't on me and that it didn't define who and what I was going to be. And I knew that for sure. I mean, there was not, you can sway me from that. And I'd lived being homeless for three weeks and had come to that decision on my own. Nobody told me I came to that on my own. And the next thought in my head, whether it's from God, whatever, but the next thought in my head was, then why are you letting the men from your childhood, the man you married, your parents and your children define you? Yep. I'll never forget that moment. Because I wasn't letting the definition of homeless define me, and I was defiant in that, but I was letting them define me. And I didn't know how for them not to define me. Mm -hmm. 
And I really think that that's why I ended up in the homeless shelter. When I mentioned to my son as he was moving, I may end up in a shelter. His words were, God wouldn't do that to you, mama. And I said, you don't speak for God. And I said, if I end up in a homeless shelter, God knows there's something I've got to learn that I can't learn any other way. And I'm telling you, if I had not been living the reality of being homeless and come to my decision that this ain't going to define who I, who I am or what I'm going to be, I couldn't have allowed that moment. Because even though I would say, oh, well, they don't define me. I know they shouldn't. In my whole being, myself, I carry that shame and guilt from what the men did, from being disowned, from being told you are messing with godly things, from being called names. But in that moment, it was, it was again like another light bulb moment. I could see all the lies I had been fed from childhood to an adulthood of this is who you are to be godly. And if you are not these things, you are not worthy to talk to or to be around, you know? Yeah. So do you think that you had to be, you had to be in that state of being a million pieces, like a puzzle, so that you could put yourself back together? Yeah, and so put myself back together. I would say I still haven't put myself back together. I, as I was going along one day, and I'm not a vision person or whatever, but it's kind of like peripherally, you see something, and it was a stained glass window that I could see in my mind. And I love stained glass windows. Yeah. I used to have several little, really, they were painted glass, but hanging in different windows in my house. And what struck me was these were broken pieces of glass that were put together, but the lead was filling in where all the shards for the broken places. Yep. And I realized he was showing me that, Dietrich, you will be whole, but you'll be held together by my love and my strength and my protection. And I was delighted with that. And then, like a year later, I realized, I saw it again, and it wasn't just pieces of colored glass. It is a design of a picture. And when the light hits it, it tells a story. It's not just pieces of glass put together. And so I, that has given me more joy than anything else of knowing I was shattered Yeah, to be put back together in a way that tells a story that has a meaning. That's absolutely beautiful. That metaphor explains it just beautifully. Yeah. So honestly, awesome. I did put myself back together. <laughs> yeah. But I love the way that you said it's kind of like a work in progress. Like it's yeah. still a picture and the story is still being formed. Yeah. Yeah. So you were working as a barista to keep yourself afloat. And then something, did something happen that allowed you to have a little bit more stability and get out of the homeless shelter? Well, it was another one of these amazing moments, but I was working two jobs in the shelter for a bit. And uh, another Star another Starbucks customer asked me the exact same two questions. It was two women in Starbucks asked the exact two questions. And one had a response of crying and running away, which I'm not blaming her here. She allowed me a moment to realize that didn't have to be defined. And the other woman was like, you do not. I said, yeah. She goes, can I ask some questions? And it was nice of her to ask, can I ask some questions? I said, sure. She asked a few questions and her last one was, can my husband and I meet with you tomorrow? They came in almost every day, two of my favorites. I adored them. And I said, sure. So when I got off work, they were there. He said, can I ask questions? And I was like, listen, I don't go around telling it, but ask whatever you want. So he asked very personal questions and he asked financial questions. Hmm. And I answered everything, honestly. And when we were done, he was like, we just know you was our barista, but we love you. And he said, we cannot even imagine what you're going through. So for the next six months, we're going to give you this many hundreds of dollars a month. And we don't ever want to be paid back. We just want to invest in you. Wow. And that's how I got out. You had a guardian angel. Yes, I did. I still do. And you also started using your very talented voice, right, in the city. So can you talk a little bit about that? I did my first show in May. So I got here June of 2015. I did my first show in May of 2016, well before my son and his wife left. And uh, I would go every Sunday and hear this band at this Hill Country Barbecue in Brooklyn. It has since closed. I would go every Thursday night to hear this band, love music. But I wanted to get out and give my son and his wife time home alone. So I would go every Sunday. And first Sunday, this band adopted me and eventually gave me a song to sing on stage. And But the sound guy would be in the back and I'd be in the very back. And I would, you know, everything's crazy loud. I would harmonize, never knowing anybody could hear me. I, was, I thought it was so oh. quiet. And the sound guy was like, we should give you your own show. So I started listening to them in September. So January of 17, no, January of 16, I went to him. I was like, you mentioned this. I don't know if it's a possibility, but I would like to do a show. And I want to call it One Woman's Journey to Love. And I want to do this. It's eclectic love songs. I've always wanted to sing love songs. Eclectic love songs would not even go together in a show, but I'm going to use narrative and tell how I ended up in New York. And I told him, and I told him a little bit about what I'd learned. And he was like, oh my goodness, you're going to do the show. So I did it May 15th. And then I went in the shelter October. And then I got out of the shelter February 28th. And while I was in the shelter, I was planning my next show. I think it was March 15th. And I did it, but never mentioned that I was had just gotten out of the shelter. But I did it. So I've now done 20 shows in New York and I did uh, two performances of a one-woman play. And I'm in the process. I have an agent and I have something to say. I don't necessarily want to be on stage singing with a mic, although I love singing, but I have something to say. And using music to say it is a fun way. Yeah, that is beautiful. Would you say that music was something that helped you make it through all those tough times? Music definitively helped me through those tough times and laughter. You know, just turning bad days into stand-up comedy routine. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. my first few months in Brooklyn, I called myself the Brooklyn Orphan. And Michael Bublé has no idea. But his song Lost, I harmonized. I'm so good at harmony with him on that song. And I have sung that song hundreds of times. And that song got me through so many hard days. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, music does that, right? It's healing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of struck by the idea that you, you really thought of yourself as so broken and so shattered. But yet you had the strength to do a few very you know, things that were catalysts to, to helping you get out and climb, keep climbing up again. Like you got a job, you were doing your singing, you know, you were talking to people and making connections and forming relationships. So to me, those things are like 
even though you felt so broken, you were physically able to still claw your way, you know, back a little bit. People comment on that and I always listen with great interest because it's interesting getting a report back on yourself that you can't see. But I think because I've been singing since I was four years old, it's all I knew. And then I had a full scholarship and I sang, we did 78 concerts that first year. And then the fact that I taught classes for years and years and years, taught women. So learning and teaching, giving information, it's all I knew to do. And I had been, so if you count the fact that I was two years old when extreme trauma began to happen to me, I have been doing that my whole life. I know no other way to live. And so it wasn't anything different for me. I always sung when I'm having a hard time. I taught lessons on how to get through when I'm having a hard time. So New York was no different. It's just that it was, I got to sing love songs. I got to do it in a totally, I wasn't in this little tiny world anymore of all these intense regulations that really have nothing to do with spirituality. It was just what I was told you had to do. And so it was more open. Getting to sing love songs was an incredible thing for me. And then I've made friends my whole life. So as a pastor's daughter, it's what I do. I make friends with everybody in the church as a pastor's wife. So again, that's all I know. So these are elements that I've done since I'm four years old. It's who I am. It's what I am. So I'm not doing anything different than I've done. And I've been having a hard time with extreme trauma since I was two years old. Yeah. So you had that strength to fall back on at least, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. That's pretty amazing. Was there a point where you realized that you were free? I remember that first winter, like I got, you know, I said I got here in June and that September we had 28 inch snow in New York. Crazy. I, I have snow boots because of that event. But I remember waking up in the night and reaching for the body that I was used to sleeping next to for 34 years for warmth. I rarely get cold, but he was six foot six. And if I got really, really cold, I would reach for him. He would warm me up and I'd reach for him and it startled me awake. And I remember thinking, <gasps> and what was interesting was he was my best friend, my lover. I didn't walk unless I held his hand. I had not missed him one second until that moment when instinctively being cold, I reached for him in my sleep and it startled me awake. And I laid there for a while pondering the fact that I hadn't missed him. I was never going to miss him. And that I was free of that. Now finding a way to live was going to be a hard thing to do. Yeah. But I think when I got out of the shelter, I rented a room for two and a half years from the drummer in my band. And he was on tour a lot with a big band. And so I would be there alone. My first three weeks, he was gone. And I just cried. I cried. And I cried. And I cried. Because getting free of the marriage was one thing. Then getting free of the homeless shelter was another thing. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. But that's when I began to work four jobs seven days a week. Wow. And so what are you doing now? <laughs> now I moved north about an hour of Harlem, which I was in Harlem over six years. And there was a fundraiser with the Humans of New York story. So I paid cash for a house. I don't ever intend on being homeless again. Yeah. I'm about to launch the music career. I have my cigar line, which is not making money yet. It's going to be a bit, but I'm now in several lounges. Hopefully we'll pick up more, but we'll see what all happens with that. And I am just forging a life. I no longer have to wake up to an alarm clock. I'm staying very busy. I'm redoing my website right now. I'm about to be able to, you know, I want to raise money in the nonprofit. It's called One Woman's Journey to Love because that's what all my shows were. My first show, I thought I was looking for love with a man. What I've learned is learning to love myself. Yeah. And so I want to encourage everyone, not only women, take a journey to love yourself. If you can do that within the confines of where you are now and be supportive, that's awesome. If you need a new job, get a different job. If you need new friends, get new friends. If you need to escape, escape. And I hope one day that this nonprofit, it'll take some years, but I can provide a place where women can literally escape if they have to escape like I did. And they will have a place for a while while they get some skills, they can get life together, they can rest. And that is my purpose for that nonprofit. Uh, for now, my goal is to raise enough money where hopefully next fall I want to do a conference, One Woman's Journey to Love. Because if you don't do it body, soul, and spirit, if you're just trying to do it, one, you're not going to make it. You have to learn all three. And I want to provide that conference, body, soul, and spirit in New York. You know, with the Broadway play, I'll do a show. We're going to have breakout sessions. I've already got lined up a therapist, excellent to talk about the emotions. I've already got a nurse practitioner lined up to talk about the body. I'm going to talk about the spirit. So that's what I kind of want to do for now. But it takes you thousands of dollars to leave those deposits and be able to plan all that. So yeah. that's the goal for that. But that is my goal is. As I told my agent, I want to be able to go to a city and do my big show. I have a lot to say there. It's a, it's a great show. It's so much fun. And while I'm there, I'm like to do a couple of cigar events and I want to speak on a college campus about domestic violence. All I knew was extreme violence, a man with a woman, but I've never heard of any other. And I would like to use, you know, I don't want girls waiting 34 years into a marriage to figure it out to, for their loss to be as profound as mine was. I still have great sorrow from what I've lost. I don't know if I'll ever get some of those things back, but I'm not going to let it keep me from having a great life. And I, I really, if I could say some things, I could channel a lot and they would recognize the subtleness and the red flags and what looks like love, but it's actually mm -hmm. being smothered and isolated. You know, I would like to be a voice for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the psychological toll is huge. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's not something you easily walk out of. No, no, not at all. Well, that sounds amazing. I just can't help but wonder what was the first time you had a cigar? <laughs> Where did the cigars come in your life? Well, this is another crazy story. So it's 2020, you know, New York lockdown in March, uh, lockdown on a Tuesday, our office closed. I don't know what this is. I don't have, I don't watch live TV, haven't since I escaped. So all I'm hearing are whispers at work and on the subway about this virus. And I'm not worried about it. I've heard about viruses other times in my life. And so it closes on a Tuesday and I wake up Saturday violently ill. Still didn't think I had this virus. And that's when the doctor video calls started. And so I did one on Monday, told my boss I couldn't come. Of course, I could barely talk. I was out of work four full weeks and then another two weeks with just half days and refused to go to the hospital twice. I told her I'd die at home. And when she, she sends us an email expecting me to die at home. 
I ended up with acute renal failure. Three doctors have told me they're not for sure. I shouldn't even be alive. I was dead and I didn't know it. And then I got over the fevers, like three weeks into it. I finally been fever free, totally fever free for three days. I decided to walk half a block to Broadway, it's not a bench, fell down a flight of stairs, ended up with a lot of stitches across here and here and landed on my head, nine month concussion. So 2020 was this horrible year and I'm all alone, can't get food. People are trying to ship me food. My sons can't fly in, you know, first they're not flying people in. So finally I get to feeling a little bit better, but the sidewalk cafe is open in New York and I'm three doors from the corner of 141st and Broadway. And my drummer, who I've got my own apartment now, but I'm seven blocks from him. He says, meet me at this place for a glass of wine. He's from France, loves wine. So on the corner of 141st and Broadway is the Harlem Cigar Room. And I would have to walk through the sea of men to the place right next door. And at that time it was called the Harlem Wine Room. And there was a table. I could say, I could touch, I could touch the closest guy. And so I started meeting uh, Bobby there every Tuesday. I'm not a wine drinker. So I, asked, I said, you have something sweet. I'm from the South. So there was a Moscato that I could tolerate. And he had to order food. I ordered fries, the cheapest thing. So he would meet me every Tuesday. I think he was just checking on me. And then I started going on Friday. So for like five weeks, I'm going down there twice a week. My oldest son, who's a man who works in security, he's at home. Crime's going up in Harlem. I'm worried. A lot of unrest. We had the riots. We had the political unrest. We just had the COVID unrest. Crime was going up. And he goes, have you thought about moving? I said, I don't have any money and I'm too tired. I just can't. So my prayer was, God. Matthew's worried. He's not a man who worries much. I don't want him worried. Can you protect me here in New York or do I need to move? And if I'm going to have to move, you got to provide the money and where to go. And I said, but what I want to know is, can you protect me in New York? And if you can, can you show me in a way that my son is comfortable as well? So I've been walking through the sea of men. My son calls. I said, you know what? I have to walk through the sea of men smoking cigars. I call them the Harlem Mafia. If you watch enough movies about Harlem in New York, you get the idea. That's what goes on. And I said, nobody's going to mess with those guys. And I said, I think I'll just start introducing myself because the more people I know, the safer I am. And he was like, that's a pretty good plan, mom. So I went down there one day and one of the men walked over to my table and he said, you look lovely tonight. I said, thank you. And as I left, I was like, God, he talked first. So I went up to him and I said, thank you. And I shook his hand and said, my name is Dietra. So I met two of the men and they invited me to smoke a cigar. And I'm like, guys, I've never smoked in my life. I said, my, some of my sons enjoy cigars. And so the next week as I was leaving, one of the men stopped me. He goes, you know, we look forward to you coming down here. You light up the corner. And I said, thank you. My name is Dietra. I met six more. And then the next, I went down on a Tuesday and I went early with my computer and there was one man outside and he stopped me. And this was his exact sentence. We want to offer you protection. And I said, you know, I'm a woman who takes that seriously. And he said, we take care of family. You're now our family. And I said, well, I'm going to be honest in my mind. I call you all the Harlem mafia. He said, we're the FBI state police and security. He said, we got you. Nobody's going to mess with you. And they told me later they figured out I was alone. I didn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. And so I called my son. I said, fly up here this weekend. I'm going to smoke a cigar. I'm going to accept this protection. And I want you with me. Y'all can do your man talking stuff. And uh, I want them to know I have a son and I'm not a flirt. So he flew up there. I smoked a cigar Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday. And I knew like 12 guys by name by then. And I introduced my son to them. And every single man told my son, we got your mama. You don't worry about your mama. Nothing's going to happen to her. And as he prepared to leave, you know, that Sunday night, I was like, does this help you? Because that is the most legit group of men I've ever met. And my son began paying my membership for Mother's Day, my birthday every year. And I became a member of the Harlem Cigar Room and was just welcomed in. By this group that you would think, you know, women and, and one of the men was like, you have a golden ticket to a group of women normally aren't allowed. And I said, I'm appreciative of my golden ticket. And they just, they taught me a lot. They taught me how to stand up for myself. They taught me how to be a little sassy. They taught me how to drink whiskey. You know, they introduced me to a world I didn't know anything about. And they cheered me on and loved me. And they have provided, I mean, I still just, I go back, like I'll be back there tomorrow night. I still go back regularly. They're just my guys. And as one of them told, my son didn't come back for over a year. And one of the men was trying to explain this relationship between this older white woman and them. And he was like, your mama, she's, well, she's, I mean, you know, we're, uh, it's so unusual. And finally he just goes, she may have been born white, but now she's black and Hispanic. And I just feel like I have the best of everything with them. So that's why I started smoking cigars. That's awesome. Like I said in the beginning, I always feel like cigars are a little bit sweet. And I think that the cigar really is the perfect analogy for you because you are sweet, you're tough, <laughs> and you're, a cigar is like a strong thing. You know, it's a strong thing. It's packed well. It's got so many things about it that are also the things that are now about you, your characteristics. So it's like the perfect thing. Well, I'll take it a little further. To me, when I went to the DR last year and designed my line, I... I picked a company that's nine brothers and sisters and their passion for the leaf and the tobacco and everything they bring to it is incredible. And then the owner of the Harlem Cigar Room, I took the magic from there and then the resilience and the hope that I've always had. And we rolled them together. But those leaves have gone through a year just like we do. And sometimes they don't get enough rain. They get too much rain. They have problems. But whenever you those leaves are chosen, not every leaf is chosen, but when the ones get chosen and you put the different kinds together, you roll them together and you like them, the essence of what those leaves have gone through is released to you. And some cigars, I smoke one, it just make the tears pop out. I don't want it. Some Every cigar has its own essence. And it's just like you and I, when things in life light us up, our essence is released. And uh, I like a cigar that releases an essence that relaxes you. And you, a cigar is a thing of deep breathing. It's a thing of deep conversations, making good friends. It is the best of life. That's amazing. I love it. I read that 
when you were working with your doing a little boxing in New York, your <laughs> boxing guy, he said to you that, well, he taught you how to be tough and he taught you how to say, how to really just come out fighting. But he asked you what your greatest fear was. And you said it was defending yourself yeah. at that time. What's your greatest fear now? Wow. I am about my greatest fear now. I guess I'm kind of experiencing that right now because with the fundraiser, I, you know, I'm at the end of, it's been over a year. I'm at the end of that money. I'm at the end of that money. I've got to bring money in to take care of myself. I've got this house. This can take care of me. If I have to sell it, I can live here, but I need a way to provide for myself financially now. And so it is the fear of not being able to accomplish that. Now, do I think that I'm going to be able to accomplish that? Yeah. I've got all the building blocks, things are in motion, but it hasn't happened just yet. It hasn't happened just yet. I'm about to get, so when the story came out, I had six movie offers. So I've accepted one and they're working on that. And so I'll have the upfront money soon for that. And that will carry me for about another year. But yeah. Well, that's exciting. It is exciting. And I've worked with the, author, the writer of the script. In fact, he's the writer that wrote Goodnight Oscar that just closed and was selling out every night. He and I spent every week for months and then we flew to Arkansas for seven days. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's a Tony Award winner. <laughs> and I've told him it's not fair. I'm now just in love with this man. And not only is he gay, he's married, but I adore him. Oh, that's awesome. So is there someone special in your life? I do not have anybody special in my life. I have tons of cigar guys that I really enjoy, but there's no, I'm not dating. I haven't dated for about two years. Yeah. But you're open to it. Very much so. I would love to have a man in my life. He will have to be. He will have to be comfortable with cigars. You know, <laughs> he needs to be a cigar smoker. Maybe not smoke much. I don't ever smoke cigars at my house unless I have company and they want to smoke a cigar. But they need to be comfortable with that, simple or not. But yeah, nice. So, can you sort of sum up what you think are the biggest lessons you've learned in life? One is the most important one was God designed me to stand on my own two feet, and He loves me just as I am. And just because I'm a female doesn't mean I'm less than. In fact, He designed me as a female because that was something that He needed, and I have a purpose for that. And the other one is that no event in your life, no matter how bad it is, no address, be it a homeless shelter. No person in your life gets to define who and what you are. You choose that. And the other thing is, is that the journey to love is not with just a man. It is learning to love me and be happy and understand the beauty that I have within me and releasing that into the world and then seeing what happens with it, you know? Right. Yeah. How do you define yourself now? I define myself as hummingbird crazy, not batshit crazy, just hummingbird crazy. I just hover and then I float away. I'm quirky, but I think that I am very well adjusted. I think that I am emotionally mature. And I also think I'm just a little bit, you know, quirky. I'm someone who still just has this adventurous life. I never know what's going to happen. And it's just, I meet somebody and it's like, oh my goodness, this was meant to be. And I, one of my therapists said, you're the most open person I know for what happened to you as a child and in your marriage. Mm -hmm. And my answer was, I know who my rock is. I know who my protection is. I know who my provider is. Why would I be afraid? Mm -hmm. And so I want to be open to life. Now, I run my radar on everybody I meet and then make a decision on whether or not this is something that needs to be pursued. And just, is this to encourage or is this to have a friendship with or whatever? I'm not yeah. just open to everything, but I'm very open to life. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can feel what's aligned. Yeah, I can. Yeah, that's beautiful. What about your blessings? My blessings are one, I have a house that I paid cash for. Mm, that's wonderful. That is a very big thing to me. Yeah, and that's huge. I have a home where I am at home. And that's a blessing. The other blessing is, is that I'm free to be me. And the me that I am is, I'm not a controlling, I'm not manipulative. I don't have hidden agendas. I don't have anything in me except a love for that I've been given and a love that I want to give. But I, I really, I like my life. I like who I am, even though I don't know every step in front of me. The steps that I can see that the clouds are clearing are incredible. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm going to ask you one last question. If you can answer in one word or just a couple of words, okay. what is the most important thing? God is the most important thing. Mm. Wow. To me. I'm just going to leave it at that. Thank you, Deetra. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. It has been so nice talking with you. Talking to people about the roots of their struggles fuels my mission. It helps all of us to see a little bit of what is hidden in ourselves. This is why I created Life Story School. Because this is the easiest way to transform from who you are now into who you want to be. I created a place for you to dig deeply into your life's experiences that is like self-discovery on steroids. I show you how to make it easy to finally figure out what's been holding you back. This is a live 12-week program taught in person by me just as I do in the university classroom. One of my current students who suffered a childhood of severe trauma and loss said to me recently, for the first time in my life, I can recall positive memories from my childhood. That's directly because of the work she is doing in Life Story School. I've discovered a process for uncovering the things you don't even know that you can't see, the lessons that you need to learn in order to be that person who you wish you were. To get over things, to learn from things in our past, we must get closer to them from the present. We must take them through a special thought process to transmute them, to integrate them, and to release them. And that's what you'll learn how to do in Life Story School. You'll do mindset work in a whole new way while simultaneously building your life story on a timeline. You'll create a legacy gift for your children, all the pieces of your life put together, and all the hidden lessons uncovered so that your wounds, your parents' and grandparents' wounds, don't get passed on to your children. And so you can finally be that person that you have been looking for. If you have been through years of therapy, you've taken all the personal development courses, you've read all the books, but still you are not where you want to be, then you need to try something different, something that actually works, and that is why you are hearing this. Think about where you could be in 12 short weeks. Sign up now for Life Story School if you're serious about wanting the transformation that you haven't been able to find anywhere else. It's inside of you, and I can show you how to find it. 
If you want to talk to me about what Life Story School can do for you, send me a DM on Instagram at Mitzi Ann Campbell or email me hello at blessingspodcast.com. I love you and thank you for being here.